Baltimoreans is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find, find more podcasts like this at baltimoresportsreport.com. All oh, right, I see. <laughs> You're listening to Baltimoreans. Even in the off season, it's your home of the all weather fan. Even in the off season, I have kept my 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 Christian name, Sam Dingman. I've been thinking about making a change, but as of right now, I'm still Alan Smith. <laughs> and this is. Fortunately or unfortunately, still, Baltimoreans. That's not what I say there. <laughs> Let's get stupid. All right. Well, one step ahead of you. <laughs> Baltimoreans. Hello, Baltimoreans. Woof. <laughs> Clearly, we're a bit rusty. Take a week uh, off, and, and that's what happens. We, uh, we're easing our way back in to, uh, to um, what are we, what's this podcast called? This this podcast is called uh, 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 Bird Fancy. <laughs> hey, Ooh. that would be a good name for an Orioles podcast. Bird Fancy. Um, but Bird Fancy is not currently a member of the Baltimore Sports Support Network, whereas we over here on Baltimoreans are. Oh, all right. That's what we're called. Baltimoreans. <laughs> and yes, we are a member of the Baltimore Sports Support Network. And uh, I would say a proud member. A proud member. Of that organization. We're more proud of that than apparently our name. <laughs> I'm actually more proud of that than I think any actual professional achievement <laughs> that I've ever achieved. Oh, good. That's uh, setting the bar fairly uh, fairly high today. We're, we're basically pretty solid role models for your kids, ladies and gentlemen. So <laughs> if you've already put them to bed, go... Go wake them up, uh, make them a little hot chocolate, and if you want to do it Baltimore on style, put a little Glenlivet <laughs> in the hot chocolate. Don't get your kids drunk. But, I mean, they got to learn sometime, right? Anyway, we digress. <laughs> Here we are at episode 71 of Baltimore on's. Um, and it's ironic that we're entering another off-season without a clear and delineated sense of who the heck will be throwing the ball when we break camp, which, by the way, happens on February 13th, which is exactly 100 days from today when we record, though why anyone would begin a season on Friday the 13th, even if it does fall on a Thursday, is beyond me. Um, but again, we digress. Um, <laughs> it's ironic given that thought, because the number 71 corresponds with the 1971 season, which saw the rise of perhaps the greatest rotation in Orioles history, and perhaps one of the greatest rotations of all time. Mm. 1971, four Orioles pitchers won 20 games. Oh, Can I, you name them? I think I can name them. All right. Here they come. Here they come. Jim Palmer. Correct. Dave McNally. Correct. Mike Cuellar. Correct. I got to get number four. The big four. I got to get number four. I know I can do it. I know that I can do this. Louis Tiant. Uh-uh. Give me one more try. All right. Give me one more try because... He's not in the... He's not... Mike Boddicker. He's a, he's a far, far step down in the Mount Rushmore of Orioles pitchers. <laughs> Gentleman named Pat Dobson. Patty D? Who then left the Orioles and never uh, won 20 games again or pitched below three in his earned run average. Um, but right there, those four gentlemen all won uh, 20 games. Wow. Uh, and you have essentially a rotation of aces 
which is especially funny because our rotation is mostly twos and threes and maybe the odd joker that someone has drawn a nine of clubs in in shorthand because <laughs> they lost that card. Um, I think that actually if the Orioles rotation this year were a poker hand, I think it would be a busted straight draw that left us bluffing with a hijack. <laughs> is that fair? Yes, and I support your use of the phrase hijack. <laughs> the only other team, Sam, to have four 20-game winners was the 1920 Chicago White Sox, which was famous for being the team that uh, was suspended from the playoffs after the 1919 Chicago Black Sox scandal. Ah. Shoeless Joe et al. A proud tradition. Uh, among those were a guy named Ed Sakota and a guy named Lefty Williams, which is a fantastic baseball name, both of whom won 20 games in 1920 and then never played professional baseball again. Well, now I'm starting to understand why our pitchers are so reluctant to have 20-win seasons. It's clearly not uh, a good omen right. for your future career. I think I think that that's, that's clear. Number 71 is also the number of U.S. Navy's nuclear aircraft carrier, USS Theodore Roosevelt. It's the 71st in our uh, fleet. Oh, okay. <clears throat> Roosevelt was um, many things as a president. Uh, I, I am quite a big Roosevelt fan for a series of reasons, but um, Teddy gave us the National Forests that are undeniably one of the most awesome things about being American. He also shot one of pretty much every animal on the ark. Um <laughs> He campaigned against monopolistic control of big businesses, uh, making him sort of a giant of the progressive movement, um, while also taking a page from Chris Davis's book with his international policy and his off-quoted motto, speak softly and carry a big stick. (laughs) He is, in fact, the fourth dude on Mount Rushmore um, and a fairly impressive president in everyone's list. Here's my favorite Teddy Roosevelt story for you kids at home. In his later years, um, after having been president for a while and then been out of politics for a bit, he started his own bull moose party and once again ran for president. Um, During this process, Teddy was on the campaign trail when, as he prepared to deliver a speech, he was shot in the chest by a salon keeper named John Fleming Schrank. Also a good baseball name. (laughs) It was only through luck... Um, as the bullet was partially blocked by his steel eyeglass case and a 50-page copy of the speech he was about to give, which he was carrying in his jacket, that he was not killed by this attack. But um, on realizing that he was not coughing up blood, Teddy correctly diagnosed that he was not mortally wounded and therefore decided not to go to the hospital right away. In fact, he stood and delivered a 90-minute speech as his shirt slowly soaked in blood. <laughs> Only after completing the scheduled campaign shop that campaign stop did he allow himself to be treated um, medically. Now, I, as anyone who knows me at all well, uh, knows I am something of a ninny, um, <laughs> a, a sissy, if you will, uh, a less than purely masculine man when it comes to pain thresholds. For example... Earlier today, I was given a flu vaccine shot. I would be unable to participate in any athletic event this evening and probably am good for nothing else besides talking into this little microphone here. (laughs) Kirk Gibson, I am not. 
Willis Reed, I am not. Um, I think I'm more of the Robert Ro- Brian Roberts type in this case. Loud noises, bright lights. I need to go lay down for a long period of time. But here uh, we come to the crux of my question for us to grapple with here on episode 71. Uh, in light of Dylan Bundy not joining the rotation of 20-game winners as we'd hoped, in light of Manny Machado, in light of our suspicions that Adam Jones's power maybe went away with his wrist injury, I ask you, why do we glorify athletes playing hurt? Oh boy. What about this extra mystique do we give to someone like Willis Reed, who comes back in Game 7 of the Finals uh, with a torn something major important in his leg, muscle, um, plays, I think, a combined four minutes. Wasn't supposed to suit up at all. Plays a combined four minutes. Makes his first two baskets. The Knicks are inspired and go on to win Game 7. Willis Reed is uh, ranked as the most important moment in the history of Madison Square Gardens. Well, I think think probably right off the top, it has a lot to do with the degree to which we associate... uh, People who excel on the field of sport, um, we equate them with soldiers. Mm, and, the battlefield metaphors. Yeah. So we think that if a soldier proudly fights for his country until he or she can fight no more and then is killed in service of that ideal, that's uh, I think almost anybody would agree that that is a very worthy way to die. I'm going to um, throw this out there. I would rather have a, sh- a soldier that just doesn't get shot at all. <laughs> Of course, of course, I would too. I would too. I would rather have. Uh, um, I would rather. What uh, now? I was just reading an article in the New Yorker about a gentleman from the great nation of Iran, ah, who is legendary in uh, Iranian military circles. Uh, he's the captain of the Iranian military guard, um, and he is famous for uh, being somebody who can go out onto any battlefield no matter how intense the gunfire, and somehow come back unscathed. Hmm. Obviously, that's the guy you want on your side the most, <laughs> is this Iranian guy whose name I forget. But second place is the guy who takes a licking and keeps on ticking. Yeah, but in the military now, in the military. Now, I think when you start talking about sports, you get into this whole other conversation, uh, which is problematic on the very face of it, because we should not be associating um, patriotic death <laughs> with the ability uh, to hit a three-one slider, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, um, especially in service of uh, what is at the end of the day a private corporation and not um, a government that serves uh, <laughs> the to protect larger ideals of apple pie in the American way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but also, I think uh, It also taps into this other thing, which is more prevalent in sports than it is in the military, which is that we think of athletes uh, as better than us. Yeah. Because they can do physical things that we can't do. Right. Even though at the end of the day, their achievements are irrelevant comparatively to those (laughs) of a soldier. Not that they're totally irrelevant, but what soldiers do, I think, is undeniably a little bit more... Uh, the, the stakes are a lot higher. Sure. Um, and, but we don't really associate that with soldiers. We don't idolize, a, a much smaller percentage of the population idolizes soldiers than the percentage which 
uh, idolizes athletes. I think there's also a, a piece of the professional athlete, which is, um, and, and sort of one of the things that keeps me coming back to all sports, not just baseball, is this feeling of there's no way I could do that. There's no way that I could do the thing that I just saw. Um, there's no way I could kick a ball with that accuracy and that pace and have it dip under the crossbar like it did like from that range. There's no way I could hit that 3-1 slider. It's mm-hmm. just not going to happen. There's, there, there's, no, there's no way for that to – me to imagine doing that. So then when you imagine this thing that is completely outside your own capability and then tack on that you did it on a bum hamstring – right. Uh, it just becomes even more uh, fantastical, and I think actually that one that I that while I think you're right, I think one of the answers to the question is that we love the narrative of stories so much that when we get to add on more in- incredible things and make our main characters even more of an underdog, I mean, I hate the Boston Red Sox and I hate Kurt Schilling, but. That bloody sock game was fucking amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's an excellent. Uh, it, I mean, it's a pretty apt comparison to the the Teddy Roosevelt right. anecdote that you just shared. Right. Um, I think also there's maybe a little bit here of this phenomenon that I heard referred to recently as shifting baseline syndrome, hmm. which is uh, I actually heard this the the place that I heard this reference is on a podcast that you should really be listening to instead of this one. Uh, <laughs> called 99% Invisible, and it's amazing. Um, But uh, in this particular instance, it's a reference to the fact that um, we think of the environment that we live in, and I'm talking about nature, uh, the the natural world. We think of that environment as um, being in an ideal state, Hmm. and that the things that we do as humans going forward, unless you're somebody who believes that global warming is a conspiracy (laughs) which i disagree with you on if that is what you think uh (laughs) sorry strong strong stances here on episode 71 of baltimore (laughs) never ones to shy away from controversy (laughs) uh anyway so we we think that the natural world is in an okay state right now and that the things that we're doing are making it worse gradually over time Mm. Uh, we accept the world that we live in right now as 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 neutral. But the reality is that the world used to be far more verdant, uh, have many more species in it, and human beings used to play a much less dominant role mm-hmm. in that natural world the farther and farther back in history that you go. But because of this thing called shifting baseline sy- syndrome, we, we, we interpret our own experience as the new normal. Hmm. So, how this connects to what you were just talking about is, <laughs> I'm going to get there, um, we look back at that moment when Kirk Gibson hit the home run right. for the Dodgers, right? Uh, and we kind of lump that in, I don't know about you, but I kind of lump that in as a, it, it's a, it's a, one of the great video clips um, from all of baseball since we started being able to capture baseball on film. All of sports. Yeah. I mean, all of sports. The, the, the limping around first base, pumping the fist, like, that's, that's amazing. Oh, yeah. But for me, I have a much more visceral emotional attachment to the game where Chris Davis hit a broken bat home run. Hmm. I feel much more 
compelled emotionally when I think about that than I do about Kirk, Gib- Kirk Gibson. I think about Kirk Gibson roughly the way that I think about Aaron Boone, roughly the way that I think about uh, Dan Jennings, roughly the way that I think about um, uh, Carlton Fisk. Hmm. Whereas Robert Andino comes first for me. That's interesting because I'm not sure that I put. I don't think I put him in the in, in in the Orioles pantheon. Like I don't think he ranks against say Cal Ripken, mm-hmm. but I do put him above other stars. Gibson, you mean? Yeah, mm-hmm. other contemporaries, and I would put. I mean, like, um, which is. I mean, you know, he had an amazing season that season, and then he didn't play again in that World Series. Like, right? That that there that. I, for whatever reason, um, Jordan's flu game is more impressive to me <laughs> than any of Jordan's other games. Yeah. Where he, I mean, I don't know, have you ever seen that clip where he, like, yeah. basically passes out into Scottie Pippen's arms after scoring 54 points? Right. <laughs> um, like, that that sort of thing, I think, is, uh, I, I, do, I do rank it at a different level, and I um, appreciate those stories, those higher degree of difficulty stories. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think here, you know, we bump up against the thing that we have bumped up against before on the show, which is that you are more of a fan of sport writ large. Right. Whereas I am a narrow-minded idiot (laughs) (laughs) and am am much more want to think just of uh, the Orioles and the emotional connection that I feel in my life to various instances from their history first and then have everything else come second. Yeah. Um, whereas you, I think, have a little bit more, um, let's call it human empathy. <laughs> let's call it, uh, emotional maturity. Oh, well, I would not call it that. <laughs> I would call it attention deficit sort of nerddom, but... <laughs> So, baseball is, uh, it's done. Finito. Um, hats off. I, what, this is like, what, 15 minutes into this show? 20 minutes in? 18. 18 minutes in. Uh, baseball is done. Hats off grudgingly to the Boston Red Sox. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, et cetera, et cetera. Shave the beards, you assholes. <laughs> um, but uh, there was some hardware handed out. In the during the playoff run, this is true. Um, and the Baltimore Orioles were, I think, fairly recognized with three gold gloves. Indeed, they were. Um, first question for you: uh, Was there an Oriole that was snubbed, given that this was statistically one of the best defenses of all time? Well, I I feel that Nick Marakis should have gotten a gold glove. Mm. Um and maybe more so than Adam Jones. Mm. Um it's one of those the bat even though it's not supposed to help helps. Yeah. Now now and and I should say I don't think that Adam Jones did not deserve a gold glove. Right. I just think that if one if only one Oriole outfielder was going to get a gold glove, I think it should have been Marakis. And it's not just because he didn't make any errors. Um, although that really is a stupendous <laughs> achievement. Um, I think more than that, it's that he gets to balls that other right fielders don't get to. He puts himself in physical position to turn things that might be doubles into singles and things that might be triples into doubles. Yeah. He gets to every ballpark early 
and learns the caroms off of the right field wall so that he is never surprised by the way uh, a batted ball bounces around out there. Um, and he just generally, he never overrun, you never see him overrun a ball. You never see him dive and miss. That's he, true. He only ever dives when he has a shot at catching it and he always catches it. Yeah. Um, he, in my opinion, and, and I know that, you know, our more sabermetrically inclined folks out there are going to take issue with this. Um, <laughs> but, but because there is, there, there are sabermetric statistics that measure how many runs are saved yeah. by virtue of a player's defense. I have not done that analysis and I'm not going to you pocket protector sporting losers. <laughs> um, but I, I think it's impossible to look at what Marquecas does in right field and come to any other conclusion other than he saves runs. Yeah. Yeah. I think that um, Matt Wieters was also probably uh, penalized by his um, lack of offense, especially in light of expectations for his offense. Um I certainly think if Derek Jeter can win a gold glove because of his offense two years ago, <laughs> Matt Wieters can certainly lose one by um, virtue of his lack of offense. I don't I can't think of another person uh, who I think was significantly better than Wieters defensively. Um, you know, not just catching people trying to run to second base, but the way that he managed games, the way that he called games, the way that he took a, I would argue, uh, inferior pitching staff and and got them even close to competent and functional um you know i i think he deserves a lot of credit for that um although as we're going to say later um the pitching staff wasn't good so maybe that is on him in some way shape or form salvador perez uh, by perez, the way okay. is the okay. answer to your question yeah who who was good but i think he was a better hitter than he was a defensive catcher yeah, um, I mean, it's tough to say. It's tough to say because I think probably every contending team thinks that their catcher is a big part of the reason for their pitcher's success. Right. Um, I, I I happen to think that that's more true with Weeders than it is with other teams because our pitchers are manifestly worse than <laughs> other teams' pitchers. And that, I'm not just making that up. Everyone who looks at the Orioles agrees the problem with that team is the starting pitching. <laughs> Lord knows that's an exciting offense, and it's obviously a historically talented defense. They can't pitch. Yeah. yeah. So the fact that we are able to get anything out of those idiots, <laughs> uh, I think Weeders does does deserve some of that credit. Um, but I think that is that is not the kind of metric that holds a lot of water for the people who vote on these things. Right. I think they look at the percentage of runners caught stealing. Which um, he, he was the best at, Weeders. What, did he have the highest one? I think so. I mean, he certainly was top three. I mean, he has the highest one in my heart. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know that Weeders has ever been south of at like 32%. Yeah, no, he's, I mean, don't run on Matt Weeders. He, yeah. He takes it personally because he's so slow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You've made the Weeders angry. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I could see Weeders too. I could see Weeders too. I guess the thing, the thing to me about Marcakis that's a difference maker is that it is pretty rare to see a right fielder uh, take routes as well as he does, get to as many balls as he does, uh, make as many spectacular plays as he does on a regular basis, 
And with catchers, there's a much gooier middle. Yeah. Um, and like you have your Yadi Molinas on one end of the spectrum who are untouchable. And then, and, and your Matt Wieters too. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to put Matt Wieters in the Yadi Molina airspace in terms of defense. Ah, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I didn't know where I was going with that either. <laughs> in terms of defense. In terms of defense. All right. Um, not in terms of neck tattoos. I wouldn't no. put him in the same neck tattoo well, airspace. Yachty is in a rarefied airspace in terms of neck tattoos. <laughs> I'd put Yachty and Prince Fielder in the same neck tattoo airspace. Not the same defensive airspace. See, it's different airspaces. <laughs> um, Does Prince have a neck tattoo? Oh, he's got a he's got a bad one. Oh, an ill advised. Uh, Mama Fielder does not like his neck tattoo. I don't think probably. I know this is going to make me sound like an old fuddy-duddy, but how many advised and well-executed neck tattoos can you name? One. Belonging to? Belonging to Dave Grohl. Oh. Because, the, is it Dave? I think it's Dave Grohl on the cover of that Foo Fighters album with the FF tattooed on the back of his neck. That's pretty solid. And one time, I was at the Blockbuster. and Now, this is how you know I'm an old fuddy-duddy. <laughs> Blockbuster, again, for the kids listening along at home. There was a time... (laughs) Brick and mortar television stations. (laughs) When you couldn't just uh, whistle at your Roku (laughs) and find yourself watching Modern Family. No, no, no. You had to get in the car. God damn it. You had to go to the Bradley Shopping Center. You had to go into a store. And you had to rent a videotape. From a surly teenager named Sam Dingman <laughs> for two unfortunate summers. Anyway, <laughs> um, I really don't remember what I was talking about. Um, oh, I was there once. Ah. And Dave Grohl, who's from my hometown of Alexandria, Virginia. Really? Came in, rented some videos. Hmm. I'm not going to reveal what he rented because that would be a violation of my Blockbuster employee agreement. <laughs> really? That's that's a true fact. You're not allowed to talk about what customers rent. Wow. Legend of Bagger Vance. Anyway. <laughs> no. Uh, Dave. Yeah. Uh, that's very disappointing. You, you know, maybe he was maybe he was uh maybe maybe he was renting it for a friend. We don't know. <laughs> Asking for a friend. <laughs> Yo, Dave. Dave, I really want to watch Bagger Vance, but I cannot. I don't have enough social capital to walk into a blockbuster and rent that movie. But you're like the coolest guy in the world. He is the coolest guy in the world. You got to do this for me. He took a he took a little bit of a hit there, but I think his overall cool ratings still remain fairly strong. Well, and nobody knew that about him until I just revealed it. Right? So maybe maybe this is the beginning of the end for Dave Grohl. This could be it. <laughs> oh, his cool is circling the drain even <laughs> as we speak. Oh man. Oh, well, that's another guest we'll never book. <laughs> Add him to the list with uh, Buck Showalter. And the Pope. And the Pope. Ugh. Although, the Pope, I don't know if you saw this, he got a hug from a little kid who just wandered on the stage and hugged his leg the other day at a professional uh, event. Really? Yeah. Now, is that... Um, what Does that say more about the Pope, or does that say more about the culture of tolerance around uh, children being brats that we have in this country? <laughs> I don't think it was this country. Um. Oh right! Oh right! It was the Pope. I forgot. <laughs> he didn't. He didn't come here too much. No, 
kind of a godless wasteland. Yeah, I America. I, that's what I. That's how I would classify it. Yeah. Anyway, okay. I think uh, Nick Markakis <laughs> was was robbed, like he robbed so many opposing batters of hits this year. Congratulations, however, uh, to the three who did win. Yep. Uh, very, very deservedly, I think, in the case of Machado and Hardy, and I think also deservedly in the case of Adam Jones. Yes, definitely. Uh, okay. Okay. Try this one on for size, Alan Smith. All right. Hello. My name is Dave Wallace, former Atlanta Braves minor league pitching coordinator. Okay. Okay. I'd like to be your new Baltimore Orioles pitching coach. Not against it. Um, That's good, because I've already been hired. (laughs) (laughs) I, um, so, in the pantheon of... Um, sports coaches mm-hmm. and the relevance of how much a coach does over each game. Clearly, professional football, very heavy reliance on the coach on one end of the spectrum. Yeah. Clearly, say professional soccer, fairly low on the spectrum. You know, mm-hmm. you kind of get your guys out there, you field your 11, you give them some suggestions, and then they're off to the races. And you can make like three changes over the course of the game anyway, so you can't do all that much to change the flow. I feel like a Major League uh, Baseball manager is on one end of the spectrum, probably towards the professional football level. I think that uh, having heard um, uh, Bob Costas talk about how he got to manage a game once in spring training for the Cardinals. With, he did? Um, yeah. He went down and managed a game with the Cardinals when he because he, he was friends with um, uh, Larusa, mm-hmm. um, and he said it was incredibly complicated and like the manager did so many things and literally every single pitch, the situation changed and there was another consideration and he could be telling the people other things. With that said, I don't know that the pitching coach has that much effect on the game oh i'm gonna disagree with you alan smith i think that the manager is an important thing but i think that the pitching coach i think i could do it you think you could do it i think i'm ready well i think you could definitely do a better (laughs) job than rick adair let's that's what i'm saying let's be very clear on that score (laughs) this is what i'm saying i mean if 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 our um our our talent scouts have we don't have those (laughs) drafted um Given given the nineteen the record of the Baltimore Orioles from nineteen ninety five to two thousand and eleven, we should have had the best farm system of all time. Right. We didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, given that all of our can't miss prospects continue to miss, <laughs> and given the propensity for people to come to the Orioles and get worse, yeah, as pitchers again and again and again and again and. At the very best, return to a form that they could have learned somewhere else and brought with them. Mm-hmm. I think I could do it. Prove it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready. What, My hat is officially in the ring. What uh, What would your What would your methodology be? Because last week you you um, you mentioned uh, use, harnessing the power of poetry. I am a huge fan of the movie. Um, the Legend of Bagger Vance. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> legend of Bagger Vance. My entire pitching strategy would involve Will Smith playing a slightly racist character. That's his specialty. <laughs> Oop, we went there. Just, gen- just gently, just gently in a weird racist, you know. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Um, While secretly being a Scientologist in real life. Will. Disgusting. Shame on you. So stupid. Um, <laughs> no, uh, I, I think that the movie Bull Durham has, has said everything that there is to say about the role of being a professional baseball pitching coach, mm-hmm. which is you are a therapist. Your entire goal is to keep people out of their own heads. And you are you you have a bunch of people who are in a position which is incredibly overanalyzed mm-hmm. and incredibly overwatched and in fact is just under a microscope all of the time. And your only goal is to distract them well enough that their physical incredible ability can can shine through. But if that's the case, right. if that's the case, if 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 I'm to accept your your assertion, yes, that pitching coaches are are just like the guy in in Bull Durham, uh, they're just like Daniel Stern in Rookie of the Year. Just trying to figure out how to breathe through my eyelids, man. <laughs> <laughs> I heat up the ice cube. <laughs> this is the best of both worlds. Ah, uh, then then how do we how do we account for the fact? That you have organizations like the Braves, the Cardinals, the Athletics, who, as near as I can tell, have never produced a bad pitcher. Right. But there's no way that they've just selected people who are athletically more gifted than everybody else. It wouldn't work out that way. It couldn't happen. In fact, what they're producing is they're producing just some schmoes who have been convinced through a series of mind games that they're good. Oh, I see. Yeah. So, so, so we don't disagree on the importance of the pitching coach in creating those talents. We disagree on whether or not that pitching coach uh, is deploying actual athletic techniques or just talks a real smooth game. I, I my, <laughs> my theory is that it's the latter, <laughs> and I, I, I do not argue that it's not. I, I don't argue that it's a, a unimportant role. I just argue that the ways in which we talk about pitching coaches are bunk. <laughs> well, it, it is very interesting to me that you say this because you're 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 asserting yes that these these pitching coaches uh, are able to speak to the players and communicate them communicate with them in a way that we don't understand. They they can in effect dog whistle to them or um, confuse them or distract them. Sure. <laughs> because what I find interesting about that is when you whenever you hear a pitching coach interviewed it usually goes like this. They're like, so uh, seemed like uh, seemed like Tillman had pretty good stuff out there. Yeah, well, uh, he's uh, he's really getting the ball over, and that's always good. And uh, you know, nothing nothing more important than strike one. So, which is essentially confirming my point. <laughs> I could do that. <laughs> could I could say that. those things. You could say those. It things. is more important to get to three strikes before you throw four balls than vice versa. Wait, say that again. <laughs> Velocity is good. Movement is good. <laughs> oh, 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 I'm, oh, man. Yeah, this is working. Right? Yeah. So You're making me feel like I could pitch. Meanwhile, what he's doing behind the scenes in those cases, I don't believe that he is turning around and, in fact, dropping huge and incredible amounts of pearls of incredibly specific athletic wisdom into the ears of these pitchers. Ah, uh, see, I do think he's doing that. I just... I, w- 
then why is he why does he have the eloquence <laughs> of a third grader? Because it perpetuates the mystique. He's running a long con? Look, he's he running a and long con. Every other baseball coach? I'm gonna make a prediction right now. Okay. 2018 Poet Laureate of the United States, Rick Adair. <laughs> That's my prediction. But also, I mean, what's more fun, Alan? What's more fun? Is it more fun to think that behind closed doors, Rick Adair is exactly as boring and kind of dead-eyed and uh, inarticulate as he is in television interviews? <laughs> or... <laughs> That as soon as the cameras go away, he goes and he finds Brian Mattis and he says, Brian! <laughs> suit up, my boy! It is time to commence with the exercise. <laughs> and and he has like a riding crop. Yep. And yep. Like, isn't it much more fun to think of him as uh, Gerhard Stitt from Infinite <laughs> Jest? <laughs> wow. Then, then, you know. Yes. Yes, it is. All right. Well, that's the world I'd prefer to live in. (laughs) All right. We come then, ladies and gentlemen, to the mailbag portion of the program. (laughs) We have two mails in our bag. See what I did there? Ah, yes. Okay. So last week, we uh, we asked you if you thought it was ridiculous to wear the um, playoff edition mm. or achievement edition sports memorabilia for your team, i.e. Red Sox fans on the subway wearing the 2007 uh, World Series on-field cap. Right, right. Does that or does that does it not make you seem like a bandwagon fan? In response, our good friend Josh Soroka mm. from the Section 336 podcast, one of our sister wife podcasts in the Baltimore Sports Report Network, said, I wear weekly a Ravens jersey with the Super Bowl patch, but anything that has the Super Bowl logo as the focus stays on the shelf. Interesting. Interesting. We'll let it slide, Josh. You're still okay by us, buddy. <laughs> All right. We uh, we also received a, a truly, truly epic email, mm. Alan, from, uh, from our good friend Julia. Mm. It goes like this. Dear Alan the Bard and Dingman the Elder. Strong which, start. Yep. I don't know why we have not self-applied those nicknames earlier. <laughs> She says, I felt compelled to write to you this week, not only because I couldn't fully answer your questions in 140 characters or fewer, but also because, try as I might, I can't seem to engage Dingman the Younger in baseball banter. I should pause here to explain (laughs) some things. First off, I have a younger brother. Mm. His name is Jake. He is a capital individual in every way except for one, (laughs) which is that he is not a baseball fan. I don't know why he has made this life decision, <laughs> but no method that I have yet tried has succeeded in changing his mind. So that's Jake. Yeah. Julia is a good friend of Jake's. Continue. And now the rest of the email <laughs> will make sense. 
Um, case in point. She will say, oh, okay, wait, wait, wait. Okay, let me explain what's going on here. <laughs> See, when we go on these like five-minute tangents, it, it screws up the flow of the email. Okay. Awkward, Julia, not yours. <laughs> she says, I can't seem to engage Dingman the Younger in baseball banter. Case in point. Quoth Julia. Wow, Poppy just hit a two-run homer and put the socks up over the Cardinals. Talk about clutch. Quoth Jake. My brother would have gotten that reference immediately. <laughs> and that's the point at which we usually go back to discussing Asia or chocolate cake. <laughs> Two very, uh, you know, important subjects in their own right. Yeah, and, and worthy of podcasts of their own. Hint, hint, Jake and Julia. <laughs> First of all... Hopefully a combination of the two. Oh my God, that would be great. First of all, I agree that although the technology in MLB 13, the show, and similar games are increasingly amazing, they could use additional tweaks to make them more realistic. Number one, the Yankee fan experience. (laughs) Savvy game programmers should make Yankee fans as colorful and spirited as they are in real life. When Aroid, the PED gorilla, slaps the ball out of a pitcher's glove, for example... It is perfectly logical for fans to hurl projectiles and vitriol onto the field. Gamers should demand a similar experience in their living rooms. (laughs) Number two. That sounds unpleasant. (laughs) Sounds very stressful. (laughs) The opening ceremonies. Fans should be able to choose who they'd like to throw out the first pitch and or sing the national anthem. Oh, wow. This is a great idea. That is a great idea. You want that cute five-year-old in a leg brace to lob a ball over to Matt Wieters? (laughs) No problem. You want audience choral participation when you're playing at Camden Yards? Okay. Nice. However, if you choose Carly Rae to throw out the first pitch or Roseanne Barr to sing the national anthem, the screen goes black, a skull and crossbones appears, and then the game designers play that clip from Raiders of the Lost Ark where the Nazis' faces (laughs) melt off. (laughs) That's totally not a violation of intellectual property copyright laws. If they program the game while listening to episode 70 of the Baltimoreans hey! TM podcast. Clean. That is complete. That is, I would I would say that this email confirms Julia as a deep listener. <laughs> That's true. Of the program. That's true. It's a lot of lot of lot of things coming together there. She's dialed in. <laughs> okay. All right, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed tuning in. I'd like you to keep in mind that the music on the show consisted of our theme song by Marshall York, the interstitial music by Bird Nope by Weather Report. The song is Birdland. And playing right now, it's Kicking My Heart Around by the Black Crows. Uh, Alan Smith, anything else you'd like to add? Um, what do you call Henry Rudia when he's our only option at designated hitter going into next year? Uh, Henry Boohoo Rudia. <laughs> <laughs> Sadly, it's still Henry Arudia because he's not going to change. <laughs> and neither will we, ladies and gentlemen. Back with more inanity next week.